This episode of Haunted Cosmos is brought to you by Right Response Ministries, Bible Discovery TV, Private Family Banking, Ideal Poultry, and Squirrely Joe's Coffee, and our supporters at Patreon.com. Did you know that patrons get early access to ad-free main episodes, as well as an exclusive weekly show, The Dusty Tome? Support the show today and get these benefits and more. And now, on with the show. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. Proverbs 25.2 Western Siberia is, as you might already know, a brutal place. Environmental extremes mark this region of the world. A region that, due to the noticeable lack of modern development, already has an almost tangible feeling of mystery and intrigue hanging in the air. The instinct of wonder at this remote region is well warranted. Western Siberia is a poorly drained floodplain whose prevalent swamps and marshes create a heavy air of warm humidity in the summers, but it's the winters that are the real beasts. The cold season in the Western Siberian plain is harsh and long. Without the help of modern technology and utilities, few people have the skill and grit required to weather them. The eastern side of this inhospitable plain is guarded by the foreboding Ural Mountains. Thought by the ancients to be the Riffian boundary of the northern world, or the legendary dwelling of the Hyperborean peoples, this great chain of raised earth cuts all of Russia down its center, forming a natural boundary for Europe to the west and Asia to the east. The mountains may add variety to the landscape, but they do not provide any hospitality. Rugged and dark, unknown and in many places uncharted, few people have the necessary chops to live in a place like this. But people do live here. In fact, they have for millennia. One such group is the Mansi people. The Mansi began as semi-nomadic hunter-gatherers, drifting northwest from the Ural steppe as they followed fauna about 2,000 years ago. Eventually, they settled in right at the foot of the mountains, enjoying the cover of the tree-filled plain and the hunting offered above that tree line. Winter after winter, the people pressed on, carving out a tough life of staying alive. They found the best hunting spots and then steered clear of the fruitless areas, although sometimes they would have to pass through those gameless regions on their way to the more promising parts. There's a Mansi legend surrounding one of these barren regions, a mountain called Koletsiakl, which means lack of game or dead mountain. As the story goes, nine hunters were wading through the snow on the foothill of this mountain. And while they would certainly not waste time hunting here, it still was a good place to set up camp. They made their way down to the trees for some added cover and prepared for a cold night. They were never seen alive again. The nine men, again according to the legend, 
perished in some sinister flare of fire from an unknown source. Maybe it was an angry god or goddess out on a hunt. But this is just a legend, right? Maybe. But before we assume that it was made up out of whole cloth, you know, just the wild campfire tale of a primitive people, maybe we should pause. Maybe something did happen on that mountain. After all, the loss of nine strong men for your tribe would leave a mark, the kind of mark that stories of dread and danger might grow up out of. One reason we might need to slow down in our dismissal of their tale? I'm glad you asked, hunted cosmonauts. Get ready for a true story of mystery, fear, and loss in the high passes of these same craggy slopes, a mountain that seems to swallow people whole. This is the strange and tragic tale of the Dyatlov Pass. In the winter of 1959, at the peak of the Soviet control of Russia, a group of 10 very experienced hikers set out on a daunting trip. The team, made up of students from Ural Polytechnic Institute and led by a no-nonsense 23-year-old radio engineering student named Igor Dyatlov, would be ski touring some 190 miles over the remote Ural terrain at the most difficult time of the year in hopes of gaining their grade three hiking certification, the highest outdoor certification in Russia at the time. Dyatlov with seven other men and two women, all of them close friends, had been approved for the trip and left on the 23rd of January, 1959, boarding a train that would take them far into the more remote section of Siberia. Eventually, on January 27th, the actual hiking and ski touring began. But after just one day, the team suffered their first setback. Yuri Yudin, one of the most outgoing and kind members of the group, was forced to turn back after his rheumatism and congenital heart defects started to flare up, giving him crippling pain in his knee. His body would not be able to handle the increased altitude and slope they would begin to see as they got deeper into the wild. Nonetheless, the remaining nine hikers pressed on, storing caches of food for the return journey, practicing some rescue skills on the bare slopes when weather permitted, and never missing an opportunity to crack a joke. Remember, after all, these were friends. They were enjoying the trip as much as they were enjoying one another's company, which, which is to say they were enjoying both quite a bit. On February 1st, they started one of the more perilous sections of their route, an exposed and technical pass crossing over the saddle formed between two peaks on the shoulder of Kolat Siakl, the Dead Mountain. The plan was to cross the entire pass that day and then make camp on the opposite side. But due to a heavy snowstorm decreasing visibility dramatically, they drifted too far west, higher up the mountain toward the peak of Kolat Siakl. This wasn't a huge mistake, really only costing the group the energy they had all expended in gaining that unnecessary altitude. They realized what they had done when they failed to make it through the pass in the time they expected. After consulting the map right there on the mountain, with the wind tearing rivers of snow around them, they decided to make camp where they stood. Now, you should know, dear listener, that less than a mile away and downhill was the tree line. Many people have wondered why they didn't just go back down and get a bit of extra cover in the forest. The common answer is that Dyatlov did not want to lose the altitude they'd worked so hard to gain. If you've ever hiked up a steep mountain, you know how disheartening it is to go back downhill, knowing you'll just have to cover that ground all over again. Plus, it gave them the opportunity to practice very exposed camping on a slope with a low enough angle and solid enough snowpack that avalanches weren't a concern. Remember, the hikers were actually pursuing that 
highest hiking certification the Soviet Union offered at the time, which required a candidate to hike a route of almost 200 miles, 300 kilometers. This was a serious undertaking, and the route even needed to be approved by a special commission to meet the requirements before they set out. So these were not amateurs. They, they were all intentionally trying to learn new skills, to prove their mettle, and win that grade three certification. They were already grade two, just aiming for that highest one. So with an opportunity to practice such an important skill, establishing camp in an exposed area, they pitched their tent and night began to fall. As the group crowded close in their tent, a winter storm raging outside of its canvas, they told stories, sang songs, wrote journal entries, passing the time as friends in the mountains do. They were not overly concerned with the storm, nor really should they have been. They'd all seen much worse. The only thing worth being nervous about, and albeit the nerves should have still been small, was where they had placed the tent on such an exposed place. Overall, the scene was a tranquil one, at least in the shelter and in the minds of the nine friends. Everything had gone pretty well so far. The slight hiccup of going around the pass wasn't so bad. After all, they, they planned for some extra days in the journey just in case such a thing happened a time or two or three. They, they would get some halfway decent sleep and wake up to a hopefully clear morning that would allow them to press on towards their goal. But suddenly everything changed. Something happened. Nobody could quite tell what, but one or some or all of the hikers knew one thing with certainty. They have to get out of the tent now, right now. Whatever madness drove the intrepid team out into the merciless elements would prove fatal. The tent was cut open from the inside, urgency demanding a quicker exit than that afforded by the shelter's doorway. The tent was emptied, each skier jumping into the storm's fray with little clothing and even less sense of what was happening. The wind howled and spat pellets of snow, each gust ripping into the skin like a cruel blade, tearing away the heat of their blood with every moment that passed. As they ran, as they shouted, as their voices drowned in the ocean of wind, as they strained to stay together in the dark, the steps of doom grew louder and closer to each of them until finally it overtook, and a shadow of mystery swallowed them up. The Dyatlov Pass incident remains a true mystery. Nine friends, driven to apparent lunacy by some unknown compelling force, found dead in strange states of body, with no conspicuous explanation that links them all together. Join us as we quest for an answer to the strange tale of the incident at Dyatlov Pass. Well, welcome back, faithful, haunted cosmonauts, listeners. Welcome new listeners. Welcome old listeners. Welcome young listeners, red listeners, blue listeners. One listener, two listeners. <laughs> it's good to be back here with you. Our new host, Dr. Seuss. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm Brian Sauvé, and I'm joined by my good friend, Ben. Say hi to the listeners, Ben. 
Cheers, everybody. Yep. I'm over here drinking my English Dude, breakfast tea at I got my 3.04 p.m. local Ice time. coffee. Ben, why are we recording at 3.04 p.m.? Wouldn't it make more sense <laughs> to record in the morning? It would. Now, there's a reason we're not. Uh-huh. The first is that Brian delayed us for two hours this morning. Okay, reviewing the notes. Okay, yeah, but also just talking to people on the phone. Oh, true. The second reason, the bigger reason, yeah. is that we actually recorded an hour and a half of this show. <laughs> And then when I had to take a bathroom break, we realized yeah. that we never actually pressed record. When Ben says we recorded an hour and a half, what he means is that we sat we, here and we talked. Talked through the outline by ourselves. Yeah. We didn't hit record. No. All set up. Wonderful. So this is actually take two. Take two. There's no other way to say it. Of season two, episode five. This is take two. There's no other way to say it. And you know what? F's in the chat. You know what? In the chat. The way that I want to kick off take two episode, oh, episode wow, here we five go. is a little promo for my guy, Brian Sauvet. And I, I know. I'm sure you can't see this because it's so backlit. And most of you are listening on a podcast anyway, but. What I'm holding up is a vinyl casing. Wow. Is that what you call it? A casing? A, I have no idea. A vinyl disc holder. Yes. For his latest Psalms album, Even Dragons Shall Him Praise. Look at this. this is a two vinyl collection. Yeah. A gold vinyl and a teal vinyl. Uh, it's got 10 psalms that Brian set and two original songs that Brian wrote. Uh, and it's amazing. You should. The reason I'm doing this is because he ordered 250 more vinyls. So we have to sell these. <laughs> I had a whole set sold out, 250, and I was like, I'm going to order another one. Otherwise, I wouldn't have promoed. Hopefully, by the time <laughs> season two, episode five comes out, I've sold them all out, and that was totally unnecessary. And this is a completely irrelevant but plug. If not, please buy them because it was thousands of dollars. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, thanks, Ben. I appreciate that. And uh, thanks to everybody who, you know, if you didn't know, if you're just a haunted cosmonaut, you have no idea. I do a lot of music. Go check it out. We'll put a link in the description. Brian maybe. is a very talented musician. All joking Thank you, aside, ben. very appreciate talented it. musician. But we're good. We're all hyped up on some chilies yeah. and, and we, caffeine. We, we're ready to go. We said, it's so over. We walked out of the room. We literally went to chilies. Immediately went to chilies. We <laughs> ate lunch. We talked about haunted cosmos and we consoled ourselves with El Presidente Margaritas. We're back. We're so back. We are so back. And we're ready to talk about one of my favorite mysteries. Really, it's a tragic, it's one of those mysteries that has, um, that that tragedy in it is what makes it stick in my mind. Yeah. Because I think about these nine hikers, and I think about, you know, the, 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 the joy of their friendship, and I identify a lot with, you know, we all like getting, we live in yeah. Utah, we like to get out, backpack, you know, rock climb, do fun stuff like that. Uh, and <clears throat> that sadness and the mystery together has made this for years from the first time I heard about it just stick in my head in, in the 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 lack of closure. Yeah. Even still, we're gonna talk theories about what we think might have happened, but it's ultimately there's no we just solid don't know. answers. We, we just we're don't not know. sure. Yeah. Ben, how long have you known about the Atlaf? I think that I've known about this for almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. I, I learned about it late high school, early college, so about 2013, 2014. Yeah. And even then, I, I remember reading an article that my friend posted on Facebook or something, immediately closing the article and Googling it. Yeah. Because I didn't believe yeah, that, Come on. I didn't believe it. I thought maybe it was based on a true story, but really right. it wasn't that weird. Yeah. No, this is one of the weirdest things. As we get into some of the injuries, and the, every yeah. time you think you figure out what's happened. There's just a monkey wrench that's yeah. thrown in that you can't avoid. Yeah. It's not something that you can just gloss over. Mm -hmm. And you realize that you that you don't have a good answer. Some fact from the findings or the re has been intensely investigated by the Russian government twice at this point. Yeah. And though they have come to conclusions or what they suspect happened, 
even the official story, it just has some holes in it. There's irreconcilable yeah. problems with so, the official story. So today, the way that we're going to take you through this, before we get into any theories, we're going to tell you the cast of characters, the real people who are involved, a yeah. little bit more about them. Because so, it's important with these tragedies and with these stories that we understand that these are real people. Yeah. These are people who were someone's son, someone's daughter, real interest, just like you and me. And uh, they're interesting people. In fact, these are some, some of these guys are just, and ladies are just absolute ballers. Some, almost the entire list, you know, you read the description and you're like, yeah, I would love to, I would love to grab a beer with that person. I'd love to hang or, out with that or guy. hang out with that guy. We're yeah. talking Soviet Russia, just a, you know, not quite a generation <laughs> after World War II. Yeah. They've just lost like 20 million people in this war. Um, and so a lot of them have fathers and grandfathers and uncles and friends who have fought and uh, died in World War II. Yeah. Um, a, a, a culture in Soviet Russia, many faults, obviously, the largest bureaucracy ever to have existed. So obviously not- Millions dead. Yeah, <laughs> millions dead. <laughs> um, but the culture had its, just like every culture, had its high points. Yeah. And the 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 courage and the tenacity of the Soviet, the Russian culture for physical competency, for accomplishment, for this hiking culture and outdoors uh, outdoorsmanship. And they were very, survivalist culture was very strong. Yeah. So you'll find, I think, that these were very competent hikers and mountaineers. Especially among the youth. They, yeah. They'd come out of this tragic time of war and, you know, they're still young. They, they don't understand the full bureaucracy that they're under. Mm -hmm. And so they actually have a, a great culture of youth, of, of camaraderie and friendship yeah. and <clears throat> trying to prove themselves in the world. Yeah. I think really anyone can look at it and admire it. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to meet all the people, and then we're going to just take you through the scene and the evidence, the physical layout of the thing, where people were found, because every single one of them that— remained on the trip other than Yuri, the Yuri who turned back, yep. um, was killed yeah. mysteriously they were with found varying dead. injuries. And we're going to work through the scene and then their injuries yep. specifically. And then we're going to start talking through some of the theories, the official story, some of the strangenesses that go along with it. To I'm going to try to steer us all. Ben is going to try to convince us towards of an this one absolutely idea unhinged think, theory. This one idea that I think okay. is really, really good. And, and Mike, I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't know what happened. I have instincts. You make it sound like I know. Ben and thinks he if knows. If you made it sound like that, you'd be right. <laughs> okay. No. I also uh, don't know. I just have an idea that I I like your theory. I think yeah. it's very interesting. Um, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> and, and then we're going to talk about some some stories surrounding, so that you'd understand that this some of the theories we're talking about that are a little stranger are not like one-off. We're saying this is the only time this ever happened. Right. There's some other elements in the area and also other people have experienced that could be just a, some kind of physical phenomena yeah. that we're not yet familiar with, physics we don't understand, atmospheric science that we don't understand yet. So we're going to get into some of that to lay a few Easter eggs now. That's lay a few Easter eggs is kind of a creepy thing to say. Uh, Easter bunny. <laughs> like I'm a bunny laying <laughs> eggs here on. But let's start, Ben, with getting just a higher resolution look at the the hikers, at the, the characters themselves in this strange story that has just remained a mystery for more than half a century at this point. Hi there, faithful listener. If you've been enjoying the Haunted Cosmos podcast and you'd like to see Ben and I live, 
Then come and meet us in person at the Right Response Ministries Conference, happening March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. The title of the conference is Blueprints for Christendom 2.0, Seven Doctrines for Ruling the World. Some of our other speakers include Doug Wilson, Joe Boot, and the host of the conference, our friend Joel Webin. Yes, the whole conference is going to be really awesome. But the best part to me is that Brian and I will be on stage with Joel talking about the most unhinged things imaginable. Plus, by coming to the conference, it'll give us a chance to meet each of you in person. You can register for the conference by going to rightresponseconference.com. Again, that's rightresponseconference.com. And don't forget to use the promo code HAUNTED to get 20% off of registration exclusively for our listeners. Lastly, if you're looking for another fantastic podcast, you got to check out Joel's podcast called Theology Applied. It's on Apple and Spotify, but you can also watch Theology Applied by searching Right Response Ministries on YouTube. Check the links in the description. Brian, you know how sometimes you wake up in the morning? Uh, yeah, hopefully everybody does that. Sure, maybe. But do you ever feel tired when you wake up? Well, yeah, Ben, I used to all the time, but then I I started drinking this new drink. Uh, It's actually called coffee, and it helps you wake up. No way. There's a drink that does that? Man, I should give it a shot. You definitely need to try this. And when you do, you should buy your coffee from Squirrely Joe's Coffee. They're a thoroughly Christian company who sends you a great coffee at an affordable price. Plus, they even donate some of their proceeds to Operation Underground Railroad, helping the effort to end child trafficking. Okay, wait. I actually have heard of Squirrely Joe's Coffee, and they are really great. They make it super easy to order exactly what you want. If you go to www.squirrelyjoes.com, that's www.squirrelyjoes.com and click shop coffee. And first time buyers can sign up to receive 20% off of their first order. Just go to www.squirrelyjoes.com or use the link in the description below. Squirrely Joe's Coffee, share coffee, serve humbly, live faithfully. Brian, did you know that raising poultry in your own backyard is a well-documented and confirmed Mothman deterrent? No. Ben, no. What? It isn't. But we do know for sure that raising chickens and ducks and such in your backyard is a great way to turn a profit on that space that is also fun for the whole family. So true, King. If you want to embark on this great adventure with your people, visit idealpoultry.com today and order some chicks. They're the number one backyard poultry supplier in the country, and they are wonderful Christians as well. Remember, a poultry a day keeps the Mothman away. (laughs) Visit IdealPoultry.com today and start your order, or click the link in the description below. Cheers. Yeah, yeah. I like to comment real quick, too, on why are we talking about this at all? Yeah. This isn't necessarily a supernatural thing. It's strange in the sense that no one can really explain what happened, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that it's unexplainable. Right. The reason that we're talking about this is because this took place in the world that God made. Yeah. And it's an insane mystery that I think grips the minds of everyone that really Mm -hmm. looks into it. And if we're image bearers of God, we ought to be able to retell these stories in a compelling way so that their memory doesn't get lost. Yeah. Honor the, the real image bearers and the humans that were involved in this story that were lost tragically. That took place in a in a tragic adventure. Yeah, I'll call it. Yeah, and and that's that's the at the heart of haunted cosmos. We're not just interested in talking about um, supernatural. We're talking about a world 
that is shot through with the natural and the supernatural, but all of that together, the natural and the supernatural, is a God's spoken world. There, these, this is in a story that he is telling, yeah. and he is telling millions and millions of stories every day all across history that are absolutely interesting and fascinating. And if we're interested, we will be interesting people. Right. So we want to be able to latch onto these stories and just see you know, the compelling stories that God is telling in his history. Yeah. And uh, I think we should be interested in those. Yeah. So, so no, there's not necessarily a point where we're going to twist and be like, it was a ghost. It was the demon. Although it could have been a Yeti. Could have been a Yeti. We'll get there. <laughs> so it probably wasn't a Yeti. <laughs> <laughs> the first character that we're going to talk about is is the leader of this expedition. And you and heard his namesake. And, and its namesake, that's right. And you heard him mentioned in the cold open. A guy named Igor Dyatlov. He's the group leader, a radio engineering student at this polytechnic university in Russia. Avid hiker. Mm-hmm avid ski touring guy. I mean, he's borderline expert. If you're getting yeah. a, a level three certification, yeah. you are really good at your craft in the outdoors. Yeah. You've been through a lot. And he had this added benefit of carrying a lot of gravity mm-hmm. effortlessly. Yeah, he, he was a no-nonsense guy, but not in the way that made him like callous or anything. He was still very kind and very friendly, but he just clearly was the person that everyone naturally looked to if he was there and said like, okay, well, this is the guy that's going to lead yeah. us. And so he organized this expedition and he, you know, developed the team. Yep. He was going to take them all away. And these guys just have, I mean, Russian names. Oh, Igor Dyatlov. Igor Dyatlov. Igor, Igor Dyatlov. My name is Boris. And we're going to see a Boris later. <laughs> we are, the guy named Boris. So we got Igor. We have another gentleman who was actually a little bit of a different character. There was like a core group of four men yep. who had been on many different expeditions together. And then we had some other cast of characters with that some of that group had done other expeditions together, but they kind of cohered around this group of four led by Igor Dyatlov. And then this next uh, uh, gentleman, his name was Semyon Zolotaryov, and he was a little older. Yeah. So he was 38 and actually a veteran. If you think about 58 or 1959 minus 38 years. So World War II, he is in his mid, he's in his 20s. Yeah. So he's... (laughs) I had to do the math out loud. <laughs> 38, 1959 minus 38 right, plus yeah. eight, you know. That sounds so, right. That, all, okay, that tracks. Okay, yeah. So he fought. He was a war veteran. Frontline, decorated war veteran. Yeah, combat veteran. Uh, he was passionate about mountaineering, and his goal was to become a senior instructor. Uh, the journals, we have a lot of journals from multiple of these men and women that they kept along the trip. And it just shows that Semyon, he brought a level of maturity to the group um, that was uh, this older gentleman. He fit well in, though. And what they really liked about him was that he sang yeah. very well. So they all loved singing. They would sing together. This is that rich, youthful culture I was talking about. <sighs> yeah. We're back in the day when kids would get together and they would just sing Dude, should songs. We, should we sing Why Do the Heathen Nations Vainly Rage right now? Why do the heathen nations vainly rage? <laughs> so good. Let's finish it. You're up. welcome. Yeah, <laughs> for, for like four minutes, we're just going to sing an it's entire like set sound too. Also, you started the bass part, and I was confused. Okay, anyway. <laughs> so that is Semyon and uh, our next cast. The next one, Ben, why don't you introduce the first uh, lady in the group? Yeah, the first female. Her name is Zenaida Kolmogorova, but we just call no, her Zena. 
She kind of goes by Zena. Yeah. She was also a radio engineering student with Igor, uh, a be beautiful woman that everyone was just drawn to. You know, you know the popular girl in high school that mm -hmm. everyone wants to go on a date with and yep. take to the dance. This was Zena, yeah. um, but apparently she was also a really just pleasant, friendly gal, and she actually was in a bit of a not a competing high tension kind of love triangle, but a little bit of a love triangle yeah. with her, Igor, and then this other guy on the trip named Yuri. And Yuri. Yuri. Uh, there's like eight Yuris. So it's Yuri Doroshenko, but we'll get to him later. But she and Yuri had just broken up, but she still kind of had feelings for him based on stuff she'd written in her journal. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Igor was kind of writing in his journal about how he was starting to have feelings for for Zina, so yeah, not Yuri Yudin, not Yuri, Yudin. not Yuri Krivonashenko, Krivonashenko, Yuri, Yuri Doroshenko. <laughs> yes, and uh, but just because she's you know a college age beautiful girl, we don't want you to get the wrong idea. She actually was very tough herself. Yeah. One time on a separate trip, she was bitten by a pit viper, a pit viper that jumped out from under a rock. Not the sunglasses, right? <laughs> the the snake version, the the real thing, snake one. Yeah, and uh, bitten the leg. And so everyone else on the trip is like, "Well, let me take some of your. Can we take your pack? Yeah, You've let me been take bitten your pack. by a poisonous like, pit viper. You're gonna, you're gonna sorry, like you might die. Venomous pit viper. Right, right, I, right. Not poisonous. It's so over. It's not a plant. It's so over. Come on. Anyway, okay, anyway. And she said, "No, you're not allowed to take any of my pack. I'm going to carry what I brought, and we're all going to get out. If together. I lose the leg, I lose the leg. Right." <laughs> right. The pride is more important. Zenaida. I mean, yes. Yeah, so that's so, yeah. that's Zenaida. Wow. And then next wow. we have Brian Nikolai. Nikolai Thibodeau Brignoli. Thibaut Brignoli. Thibaut, yeah. Brignoli. And it's hard not to say that in Italian accent. Uh, so Nikolai. 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 Nikki. We're going to call him Nikki. Yeah. You know, his father was actually uh, sent to the gulag. The gulag on false charges. You go to gulag. He goes straight to jail. Straight to gulag. He he's another guy that was involved. That you'll see the, these guys are friends because they connected around their engineering, tech, physics. Yeah, they um, kind of went like to the STEM same students. They're like the STEM nerds. Yeah, but they but also they're also Chad kings party. and queens. Yeah. So <laughs> Nikolai, his father had been sent to the gulag on false charges and later like exonerated. Um, at this time, but he had already graduated with a degree in civil engineering. Mm -hmm. So civil engineer. A natural leader similar to Igor, and just and had everybody's respect. Yep. So he's part of the group. He was kind of part of that inner circle. Inner circle. Yep. Yep. Then we have another guy whose name is just very weird. Rustem Slobodin. Slobodin. It's, it's, it's a good name. The Rustem. name. The name Rustem is really nice. It sounds like a spray paint brand. Right. But also a spray paint brand that I would name one of my own sons. Let's be honest. Rustem is a good name. Yes. So he also, just like Nikolai, had already graduated from the same school, and he had actually grown up in Moscow. Uh, but when the Soviet Revolution took place, he was banished from Moscow and quartered off to Siberia because his parents were of the intellectual Intellectuals. class. Uh, but the intellectual class that wasn't, you know, inducted into the Soviet yeah. regime. And so they were very afraid that they would cause trouble yeah. among the rest of the people. So they were... They were banished off to Siberia. What the class we would have been in. Right, exactly. As podcasters. 100%. I mean, we would have been above. We would have been the ruling yeah. class. In the 50s. I would have been telling the KJB. KGB. KJB. The KJB. <laughs> it's not the King, the King James, James Bible. Bible. <laughs> I would have been what telling the KGB oh. who to go kill. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, would, have been, you would have been telling the, the secret police. Yeah. You would have been telling the GRE. 
but any but, the what is it the what is the military version of the KJB? I don't know, but the NICE also would have been telling them it, what you know the <laughs> NCIS, NCIS, <laughs> CIS, CSI Miami, CIS. <laughs> yeah, we're so dumb. Okay, so, Rustam. One of the cool things about Rustam, Rustam, I just gotta say it. King Energy. Yeah, this guy brought a harmonica with him. No, he didn't. He didn't. so close though. But he brought a. It's not close. So close. It's a mandolin. It is so close. Ben agrees. Harmonicas are <laughs> like, if you had to assign animals to it, wait, har- wait. harmonicas would be like the poop that comes out of a cat. No, listen. And a mandolin would be like a loyal dog. No, the the mandolin is the harmonica of stringed instruments. <laughs> Okay, that's fine, but the harmonica is like the flaming trash of garbage of every other instrument. Ben is jealous that I am able to seamlessly integrate my harmonica playing into any social He carries around his harmonica in his pocket. I might start playing one right now. And he'll just start playing it. And you're like, my guy. Everyone appreciates it. Okay, anyway. He so brought Rust, it on the trip. It was he had a mandolin, and you have to you have to respect the guy. We're gonna go hike and ski 200 <laughs> miles through the winters of Siberia. What am I gonna bring with? He's me? like a mandolin. I got just the thing. essential kit: <laughs> a mandolin. What a what a king! Like they're gonna sing, play the mandolin around the fire at oh, night. Like I wish I'd I don't want to know these except guys. For what except happened? for all right. dying. Seriously though, these are people that I would have hung out with. I would have loved to be with these people. So okay. who's next? You got another Yuri. Yuri <laughs> Krivonoshenko, and he graduated from again the Polytechnic Institute of uh, Ural with a degree in construction and hydraulics. And Yuri, this Yuri, just seems like kind of the class clown of the group. He's super yeah. extroverted. He was always joking it with the others in the group. And he was very close friends with Igor, with Igor Dyatlov. Yeah. So yeah. that's he's part of that inner circle. One of the Yuris. Everyone loved him. Yeah. And then the next Yuri. Yuri we got another Yuri. Yuri Doroshenko. 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 Now this is, so this guy was the ex-boyfriend of Zena. He's the, the third leg of the triangle. Yeah, we got, Igor is into Zena. Igor's into Zena. Zena is kind of into him, but maybe not yet. Right. And ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend to Doroshenko. Yeah, who is now on the trip too. <laughs> and who's just vibing. He is not He's interested vibing. in Zena No, anymore. he doesn't care. And it also seems like Zena, from her journals, has some feelings for him still. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, how could you not? Because not only is he a student at UPI, but he's also, like, once so brave, such a man, he once <laughs> fought a bear with a geologist hammer. This man... This man in the middle of the Russian woods yeah. sees a bear coming up. Everyone else flees, and he's like, I know just the thing. Yes. I will fight the bear <laughs> yeah, with a hammer. By hitting him on the head with a hammer. Have you seen that gif of the guys hanging from the tree doing the leg ups? And oh, yeah. And then another guy's hitting him with a pole. And then the bear's the one and there's pushing a bear the tree. pushing the tree, and it's in the winter. That's Russia. <laughs> that is Russia. And uh, Duroshenko is like the peak yeah. Russian. I had a friend once who... He, I worked with him when we, we were both like janitors and at this big church. And he was a rodeo clown, Australian rodeo clown. So, Aye. Aye, mate. Right. Like, we need to get our, our cauldron pool friends yeah, to, yeah, to, to come down do and the, show do us the correct shrimp on the barbie, which apparently they don't say. But let's be honest, Whatever. they really do. He was a rodeo clown. So he'd like fight bulls and protect the rodeo riders from. The bulls, like yeah, fear. The part of his brain that controlled fear was just missing. They're like the Sherpa version of rodeo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there was a time though when he was hiking, and he saw a black bear. And the black black bears are kind of spooked, easy. So it ran away from him, climbed up a tree, a lodgepole pine. He sees that there's another pine tree, like three feet away from it, growing the same, like straight, right parallel. 
He climbs the other tree to attempt, I don't know, to fight the bear. I don't know. what. When I think, when I hear about Yuri Doroshenko, this is the kind of guy that I'm picturing is my rodeo clown friend. So what woman would not be attracted to that guy? Look, because he is it. a... I get it. I get it. If my daughter brought home, which I don't have... Igor should be a little worried. Yeah. I mean, if I was Igor, I'd be so... I'd be so insecure. But he's over it enough, Yuri, that he's on the trip. Just like, I don't even Yuri's care. Yuri's just like, bro, we're I'm gonna, just here to ski. We're going to go skiing? Dude, I'm here <laughs> for some fun. So we got Yuri. We got another Alexandra Kolovatov. Alexander. 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 Yeah. Alexander. Kolovatov. Kolovatov. Another student at UPI. Yeah, physics. Yeah, majoring in physics. Very bold, very opinionated. This guy was like the the the, the bull shark of the group, like the yeah. high T. Okay, don't want to really mess with him because he has a short fuse. Yeah. But at the same time, you do want him on your trip because mm-hmm. he's super tough and he is like still fun to be around. Yes. It's just that his brashness kind of uh, bothered the two ladies in the, the group two a ladies bit, didn't like him. Where he's just always on. And he's and he's laying it on thick. I all think the time. we know which of our friends this is. This is Mister. <laughs> <laughs> We're not allowed to mention him on this podcast. <laughs> Alexander Kolovatov. Kolovatov. So he's a very driven guy, a smart guy. I mean, majoring in physics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so and then lastly, we've got the the last lady in the group. And tell us a little bit about her, Ben. Her name is Ludmila Dumanina. And what you'll find is that. Russian parents at the time of this story named all Russian girls except Zina. Yes. Ludmila. 37 out of 39 Russian women were named Ludmila. Ludmila. Real statistic. I didn't just make up. Oh, is that for real? Okay, so he made it up. I fell for it. <laughs> Ludmila Dubinina. She's the second girl of the group. She's the youngest member of the team. Um, but she was very bold as well. She, she was very outspoken and extroverted. Easy to like and get along with. Very into art, like photography, but really her passion was in mountaineering. Now, just like Zena, this is so weird. Okay, Ludmila also had a great opportunity to prove her her toughness her one metal. time. Yeah, <laughs> she was on a trip and she got shot in the leg. Shot in the, so pit viper bites the one girl in the leg. Not on this trip, to be clear. Other homegirl gets shot by a rifle. Not just a handgun, a rifle. A rifle in the leg because another member of the team what was idiot. cleaning his gun Come on. while it's loaded. Pulls the trigger for some reason. Negligent discharge. And yeah, just like manslaughters. Well, not quite, but... Yeah, could have. Yeah, could have manslaughtered this girl. And uh, and the thing is, is she didn't complain. Yeah, she okay? didn't she, I mean, she's like, ouch. She said sorry. But she started apologizing for catching the bullet because it meant they had to cut their trip such, short. Such a girl move. <laughs> like, it, ladies, you got to stop doing this. Yeah, just stop apologizing Except the for fact everything. that no one is mad at you for getting shot. <laughs> for getting shot. We're mad at the guy <laughs> who did not practice any of the gun safety rules. Like, yeah. clear the chamber no before you clean your gun. Guys, this is a Haunted Cosmos note. Gun safety. Clear, clear the chamber visually and with a physical inspection before you clean your weapon. And okay? even if it's unloaded, maintain muzzle control. Don't point a rifle at another person and pull the trigger. Especially if their name is Ludmila, because clearly they have bad luck. Unless it is... Unless it's a bad guy. A bad person. Like Ludmila's doppelganger who's an evil twin. If it's like... She's not actually human. And then you fire. Yeah, a, a doppelganger episode will do at some point. You'll know, but oh. it's you have to have a, a safety question you ask your loved one so that you can tell whether they're the doppelganger or not. <laughs> oh, yeah. anyway, so. Ludmila, last member of the cast, other than Yuri Yudin, yes, who had to turn around. Yeah. And he's actually who we know 
these detailed sketches. We have like from family interviews too, but we have a lot of these personality sketches from Yuri Yudin, the one surviving team member who right. wasn't at the event that actually took place because he turned around. So he, he was the one that really, I think, brought everything down to a, a human level because, you know, that families know the most about their children, yeah. of course, but there's something about the way that friends know friends. It's yeah. just a little bit different. And so Yuri was able to provide a lot of insight. Dude, I have such a big headache from recording this episode twice. <laughs> Spooky. Okay. Dude, Ludmila didn't complain about getting shot. In the I know. And here I am podcasting. <laughs> okay. Let's talk through this scene. What actually, so we, we get to this um, point in the hike where they're uh, faced with a, a very serious storm. Yeah. They've aired a little bit to the west from what they intended and gone into a higher elevation than they really wanted to at this point. They realize they're not going to make it over the pass. They need to break, make camp, and they don't want to go down to the tree line like a, a ways away. So it seems like a waste of Like energy. half a mile to a mile away yeah. to the cedar forest. So they're going to pitch camp here. This storm that's winding up became a storm. Some accounts say up to hurricane force winds, 60, 70 mile an hour winds. The snow... And yeah. 40 below zero. Yeah. Very that's cold. That's how cold it was. Borderline whiteout conditions. But that's what they expect on these hikes. They're prepared right. for that, those conditions. Right. That wasn't catching them by surprise, anything like that. So, Ben, tell us a little bit more about the scene where they pitched their tent, what kind of slope, the terrain. Yeah. And what, was un what, what the investigators discovered when they turn up at the scene. This scene, what we're talking about now is that the at the end of the expedition they had told yuri yudin who turned back hey add a few more days we're going to be a little bit behind schedule yeah so they're like 90 miles from the nearest little podunk town and not expected for at least i think another 10 days but well yeah they're close to their objective yeah and then uh, they turn around and then and they back. turn around so they had the return trip like yeah. another day or two yeah and then and then the return trip um, but there's always like a few days added in there yeah. of wiggle room mm -hmm. so no one would have been alarmed that for, they were late for weeks. So this camp wasn't discovered until Yuri and others realized they haven't returned on time. They yeah. waited a little bit. Maybe and then, they're just and late. then they have to go do the trip. Yeah, then they have to do the days of, of travel to get to this. This isn't an accessible part right. of the world. So it was about three weeks. Yeah, it was three weeks yeah. before they got to the camp. And once they get there, here's kind of the scene that yeah. they discovered. So they find that they had pitched the tent on one of the bald patches of the uh, of the saddle in between these two peaks. And it really is like a, a tundra. It's above the tree line. There's no trees. It's very bald and exposed. But the slope that they had pitched the tent on was like an 18 to 20 degree slope. 20 degree slope, not very steep. It, it's nothing crazy. Not for a mountain. Yeah, but I mean, it is extremely exposed yeah. to, to the elements. Now, when the scene was found, they still had skis and ski poles that were standing up in the snow as they had been placed the night of the incident. They actually used some of the ski poles to erect the tent. That, that's part of how it all yes, worked. how they do it. Inside the tent, they found a functioning flashlight, and then they also found another flashlight about a quarter mile down the hill, and this one no longer worked. Inside the tent also, there was a camera that was set on top of a, like a makeshift tripod, and then there was also one other camera on one of the students' persons. They found boots and jackets that were laid out on the floor of the tent, and they found food remains in the tent, indicating that the group was maybe in the midst of a meal, even though it was around the middle of the night. Yeah. Or they had just left some food out, knowing that in this cold of conditions, uh, bears weren't going to be a concern. Yeah. And so here's where it starts to get 
weird. Yeah. Where it starts to get weird, so that a lot of their clothing and their warm clothing is there in the tent still. still. Boots. Yeah. Don't let... They found most of their clothes still in the, in the tent. tent. No one's in the tent. Their, their clothing is in the tent. 40 below zero, hurricane winds, storm. And they find that nobody's in the tent, but they didn't leave through the door. No. The tent had clearly been cut from the inside mm-hmm. to achieve a fast escape. Frantically slashed open with a knife. Yeah, in multiple attempts, too. Mm-hmm. There were multiple gashes in the tent and as if it was frantically being, yeah. being cut at. This could be because of a number of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the entrance was obstructed. Somehow, uh, maybe the tent had partially collapsed, and so it was, it was just harder to get to the entrance. Yep. But the point is, none of that really changes the fact that something was so urgent to yeah. them that they felt it would be the best decision and the best chance of staying alive mm-hmm. if they cut the tent open yeah. from the inside, not able to repair it again, yeah. and then left without taking hardly any clothing. This is where you this is the crux of the of the issue, of the mystery, is what happened that made these nine very experienced hikers conclude. That the thing they needed to do in the middle of the night, half dressed, no shoes on, cut their their tent, which is their shelter in yeah. the Siberian wilderness, ninety miles at least, days from help, to cut that open and render it like I'm sure they could have partially used it if they had been able to right. escape and come back. Maybe they could patch something. But I mean, cutting open their own thing and fleeing the tent in a state of partial clothing out into the wilderness. Right. And so now the scene, we're shifting in the scene, and now we're going to start telling you about the people because they didn't disappear. We fa- the, the, the investigators found every single one of these nine, nine hikers. hikers were found. So, Ben, t- let's, let's start uh, talking about some of these, where we found them. So as they cut their way out of the tent, the footprints and everything seemed to indicate that they all were walking, n- not necessarily running. Yeah, not even running. It doesn't seem like they were stumbling down the mountain, mm-hmm. but they were all together walking down towards the tree line where they made it uh, about 500 meters into the tree line Mm -hmm. and all gathered around under this one cedar tree and somehow were able to light a fire, Mm -hmm. which that in itself is is very impressive. We'll talk more about that later. And at this fire pit is where the first two bodies were found, Krivonashenko and Doroshenko, which are two of the Yuris. That's why I'm using the long forms of the names. Yeah. <laughs> they were found uh, dead right next to the fire, completely without clothing. Now, this is probably because they were the first ones to die. Yeah. And so once they passed, the other team members put them there, laid them to rest, and then used their clothes so that they might survive. The next three bodies that were found were Zina, that first woman who Igor was interested in, mm-hmm. Slobodin, and then also Igor Dyatlov himself. And they were all found at different points along the trail leading back up the hill Towards to the, the tent. tent. So they were trying to get back to the tent. Yep. And Zena actually made it the furthest. She was closest to the tent, but still like 300 meters away. Yeah. And she was dead. And then behind her, Slobodin. And then behind, right at the end of the tree line, mm-hmm. was Dyatlov himself. And, and all five of those men and women uh, died from exposure... Yes. Though we will talk about other injuries that some of them sustained. Right, right. But basically, this this group of five, it seemed like, made it all the way. It was like they linked arms and walked yeah. this eastern escape route down the mountain towards the Cedar Forest. They knew it was there. And uh, they, they made it into that shelter, lit the fire, which is, I mean, that's impressive. That's insane. In so, this condition. Somehow they light a fire and... 
At this point, the storm wasn't raging anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the weather had cleared up some, yeah. but it's still fresh snowfall. Uh, so anything is going to be wet once it's heated up yeah. at all. And we know this fire burned for at least a few hours. Yeah, about one and a half to two hours had to be burning. They were, you know, cutting tree branches down. And then it also appeared as if uh, the two guys, Doroshenko and Krivonoshenko, had climbed up one of the trees mm-hmm. and had rem- strategically removed a couple branches yeah. so that they could see a window through the woods back to the tent. Mm-hmm. As if they were looking to see if the tent was what? still there or if some yeah. threat had left it or something If whatever like made them flee was different. And w- right. we're unsure. This is part of the mystery. That part's a bit speculative. Yeah. It just, they left other branches that were lower than, than those yeah. uncut. And they were scraped up along, so they yeah. didn't have much clothes on. They were scraped up along their chests, uh, yeah. and, the, and it was concluded that they had been scraped in that manner from climbing the tree. Yeah, so they would have been climbing an and, awful and, I lot. I mean, absolutely 40 below, freezing, climbing yeah. a tree. Very few of them had any boots on. Slobodin was found wearing one boot. Yeah. I think most of them had no boots at all. There was, like, Slobodin was wearing one, and then one other guy had his boots on. Mm-hmm. I can't remember who it was. Uh, it, may, it may have been the older gentleman, uh, yeah. uh, Simeon. Yeah. But no one else had boots. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it seems like all the signs point to all of them together going in to make this fire. Yeah, all nine. All of them being together. And then something happening there, yeah. which then caused the, the those three to start making their way back to the tent. And then the remaining four corpses, the, mm-hmm. the last group of four, they were found much deeper into yeah. the cedar forest. And they were found lying underneath uh, about 14 to, to 20 feet of soggy and heavy compressed snow that had collapsed over them and over top some mm-hmm. rudimentary shelter that they had built. Turns out they had built that shelter over a creek. Mm-hmm. And so the four of them were lying in the running water of the creek now. It took three months to find them. It took three months to find yeah. them. Yeah, it was very difficult. And they had substantial injuries. Yeah. Uh, far worse than what the first five had, yep. even though all of them had injuries. injuries. These were especially bad, and we'll get into those Mm -hmm. later. One of these victims, Zolotaryov, one of the four in the ravine, is what they call it, um, in this little gully, he had a camera around his neck. Uh, Now, nine frames of of the 19 that he had on that camera remain unavailable to the public, Mm -hmm. classified for whatever reason by the Russian government, but of the 10 publicly available images, one of them is especially interesting. We'll get into this a little bit later, mm-hmm. but there's there's a picture and it appears to be potentially a bright object in the night sky. There's debate about whether or not that is what it is, um, but nonetheless, we just want to plant some seeds to start talking about potential theories of what happened mm-hmm. later on. So one of these cameras was found on this guy's body. And then... Uh, they also found a camera in the tent. Yeah, they found the camera in the tent. And one of those, it's K34, that picture shows a cloudy, bright blob at the outer edge of the photo with some lens flare in the center of the frame. So some of these photos were damaged. Yeah. Some of the film was damaged. And there's a huge amount of speculation surrounding, like, what are we looking at in some of these different photos where there's weird anomalies or... People have written hundreds of pages. I mean, you can go to dyatlovpass.com and you can see all the cameras, all Mm -hmm. the photos, where they came from. And some, and then also, actually, disturbingly, they have photos from the recovery efforts um, with the the bodies. So you can also see some of the um, what we're going to talk about in a moment yeah. here. But one, but one of the big takeaways that we should have right off the bat is that they were able to get down 
calmly enough to stay together mm -hmm. into the cedar forest. They were able to light a fire that lasted for a couple hours. And it seems like it could have gone on longer. And it seems like and it seems like they just abandoned it. Yeah. Either they failed to tend it, they had dry wood there, and or the they, fire just burned out. Right, or they just gave up. Yeah, there were dry, left. dry wood all around. Yeah. Um, and then something, something happened to where only after that time, some of them thought, okay, now we can go back to the tent. Others of them thought, no, we got to go this opposite direction mm -hmm. to figure something else out. And at that point, two of them were already dead. So the, the point is, is that whatever drove them from that tent was some kind of lasting threat. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just an immediate thing where they were panicked, they ran away, and then uh, and then they immediately came back and realized mm -hmm. like, oh man, what did we just do? Yeah. No, it was they panicked and ran away for hours. And only then did they try to get back. Yeah. One of the other interesting things is that on some of the bodies, high levels of beta radiation. Yeah, were found. Were, were found on four of the on four of the, the bodies in the in the ravine. Yeah, and so it seems like they had two parties split out. Like they got to that fire, two people died of hypothermia. Mm -hmm. Maybe they decided we've got to do something. We're not. This fire is not enough. We're gonna die. Right. Because in forty below, one fire is probably not gonna be enough. Right. Some of them had severe burns on them, their hands, their legs. Yeah, the guys that were. That, that were uh, left next to the fire. Yeah. Both of them had third degree burns on their bodies. Very bizarre. Yeah, really bizarre. And then there were also branches that were still attached to mm -hmm. the surrounding trees mm -hmm. that were charred as if they too had been burned. Yeah. But how would they have been burned? Because they weren't cut off of the tree. They were just near the fire, but not yeah. near enough to be like smoked by the fire. Very weird. Like really as strange. if it had flared up really big and yeah. then, came, and back. then it came back down. Something strange. I mean, very strange scenario. Yes. Yes. So we have, at this point, we've now accounted for the party going to the fire. They, some of the, two of the, them go up in the tree, cut the branches, seem to be maybe observing the tent area, looking to see if they can go back for whatever reason drove them out of it. We have some party then at some point Two of them die. Three of them head back to the tent and die in the way. And four of them head out and fall through. Or I guess we we haven't necessarily. We, well, we don't totally know. We don't know. But presumably they fell through some sort of ice bridge over yeah. this creek. And then more ice and snow collapsed on top, on top of, of them. them. Yeah, and it took a long time the idea. to find So that's where we've gotten them now. Why don't we talk through, unless there's more that I'm missing. I was going to say one more thing. Yeah. Uh, this isn't as interesting, but I think it's important. Mm -hmm around the tent area in some pretty big radius around mm -hmm. it, 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 the snow was, it was as if the snow had been melted and then refrozen. Mm -hmm. As if there was some big heat source that slightly melted the surface of the snow and then refroze it so that it was much more piecey, like like a groomed run on a, at a ski resort or yeah. something. And it had some ridges and... Yeah, and it was really clearly defined where mm -hmm. it was like, Within this circle, within this perimeter, the snow is noticeably different mm -hmm. than it is outside of it. That's just yeah. one more little interesting thing. Yes. But I think now we should get into the the injuries. Yeah, let's because this adds a whole other element yeah. of um of in, intrigue and mystery yeah. to the question. Because they they had obviously extensive autopsies and investigation into what caused this these uh, injuries and death for these young people. So pathologist Dr. Boris Voz, wow. Vosrazdioni. Vosrazdioni, of course. Boris Vosrazdioni. Vosrazdioni. We sound Italian. Vosrazdioni. <laughs> no matter how we do it, we sound Italian. Gracias. Boris. Any language can be made into Italian. It can be made into Italian, <laughs> I firmly believe. 
So he's a pathologist. This is public. You can get ex incredibly extensive detail on uh, the reports uh, from the autopsies and the investigation. You can actually also, wouldn't necessarily recommend it for everybody. They have photos of the victims Yeah, prior to autopsy as well. Yeah, so, if you're squeamish, don't. Don't do it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It, it, it's, it, it's even disturbing. if you're not squeamish, it's like really disturbing. Yeah, it's disturbing. So, so the, the injuries and cause of death by Dr. Boris were split into two groups. Yes. We have a five-person five, five person hypothermia group that definitely died from exposure. Yeah. And then we have four that died from something else unknown maybe exposure maybe well here's the thing this is an important this is a really key point just because five of them are are sanctioned off into the exposure hypothermia mm -hmm. group that was their determined ca final cause of death yeah that's not the only injuries that they know we'll, and we'll and go we'll, through they had we'll get more. into this but and then the four ravine group that doesn't mean they didn't die from hypothermia. Mm -hmm. It's just that there are much more question marks. They could have died of other things. Right. And other things might have contributed to dying of exposure as well. So exposure played into all of the deaths. Of course, yeah. But it's minus 40. They had some <laughs> severe injuries. So, so the, yeah, go ahead. Let's let's work through some of these injuries. Yeah. So the first in the hypothermia group is Zina Kolmogorova. She's that girl that Igor is interested in. And she was found about 700 meters down the hill from the tent. She was the closest one, uh, or, or she was able to make it the furthest back up the hill. Mm -hmm. And she's facing towards the tent as if she's going to it. She's in the fetal position, which is common in hypothermic victims. The other injuries that she had that, that are worth noting is that she had a, a massive bruise on her right side that mm -hmm. passed into her back as if she had been hit by some big thing. Yeah. I don't think she had any broken ribs, mm -hmm. but potentially cracked ribs. But either way, just, I mean, a big streak of black purple all around her side. Yeah. She also had internal bleeding, internal organs filled with blood, and her lungs w indicated that she, uh, she, she suffered hypothermia. She essentially suffocated yep. um, under blood coming into her lungs. Yep. The next person is, is this guy, Rustam, the mandolin guy. Now, he was found 150 meters behind Xena, also heading towards the tent. And he was in a dynamic pose, which the only important thing is that it means that it could have been mm -hmm. a more sudden death. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to hypothermia, which is usually slower and the person is more calm. And they lay down. They lay down in the fetal position. Rustam, it seemed like he was in the middle of like crawling mm -hmm. and then he just died. Yeah, right there. Yeah, so he's face down, facing towards the tent. Now, as opposed to the rest of the hypothermia group, he, he, his official cause of death is still hypothermia, but he had severe external trauma, uh, even to the point of his head being fractured. His skull was broken. He had broken. a skull fracture. Yeah, and, it, and Boris, I believe Boris went on record saying that uh, if it wouldn't have been hypothermia, he could have died from that. It from was, that head It was injury. bad enough to, yeah. to kill him. And his lungs were also bright red and they had the same liquid. Yeah. Um, which indicates exposure. The exactly. next, the leader, Igor, is the next hypothermia victim. He was found another 180 meters back from Slobodin. So he was like 300 plus meters away from um, Zena, who got the furthest. And again, he was tucked into some tree branches as if he had stopped along the way yeah. and sought shelter. He realized, like, I'm not going to make the tent. I need to seek shelter. He's found, again, on his back with his hands clenched into fists in front of his chest 
And we're not 100% sure why this conclusion was drawn, but Dr. Boris reported that Igor was likely in extreme agony when he died. I think that he takes that from the facial expression. Okay. Because usually someone who dies of hypothermia has a pretty calm expression on their face because it's a slower death. Mm -hmm. But you enter almost a euphoric state. Yeah, you feel you, warm. You People actually even, feel warm. Some a lot of hypothermia victims even start shedding clothing. They'll yeah, take their exactly. boots off. They'll start taking clothes off for no reason. But They're, well, they feel warm. It's like, like their brain is telling them, like, "Let's get comfortable. Mm-hmm. You're actually really hot. Mm-hmm. You're not freezing cold." Yeah, and then and then you die. And then you die. That actually delirious. makes it go faster. Uh, but Igor looked like he was struggling very very hard on his face, yeah. and he had his hands clenched up as if he was desperately trying to stay warm. He also had more clothes on as if he had been able to take some clothes from mm-hmm. the two uh, men tending the fire who had already died. And so they think maybe he was in severe pain. Uh, but other than that, his lungs looked the same. He so had internal bleeding as he well. Did, yeah, like Xena, he had massive internal bleeding. Blood clotted on his lips mm-hmm. and frozen. Yes, yeah, so he coughed up some Coughing blood. up blood. Um, Yuri Krivonashenko was found an additional 300 meters down. Uh, from Dyatlov, and he was next to the fireplace the group made. So presumably when they were still together, he was one of the two. It seems like Doroshenko and Krivonoshenko had, they had been the first to die, and their friends like laid them out by the fire and yeah. then took their clothing yeah. and tried to, you know, get some shelter for themselves or get some some better uh, situation for themselves. But um, Krivonoshenko, he had bruises across his forehead and then he was the one that had third degree burns on the sole of his foot and up his left leg and his hands were charred. Yeah. And a lot of people read that and they assume, oh, well, he accidentally stepped on the fire mm-hmm. uh, and then in, a, in an act of desperation, he shoved his hands into the fire to get warm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah, like the, I think that's possible for mm-hmm. sure. But just because you're hypothermic doesn't mean you go insane. It just means you stop thinking so clearly I, I I can't think of a single case where someone in a hypothermic state has tried to burn themselves. It's not like you forget the laws of physics. It's yeah, just very strange. fuzzy. So he had charred hands. At any rate, it's weird. And he too had massive internal bleeding. And then the other guy tending the fire, Yuri Dordashenko, he was found next to Kravonashenko at the fire pit, burns on his body, uh, much more much more widespread than Kravonashenko. He had much more burns and he was covered in scratches. And a lot of people think this is because he was the one climbing the tree. Um, and some has some have wondered if the reason he had such widespread burning is because he actually fell out of the tree at one point and landed in the coals of the fire. Uh, we don't know. We don't know. We do know that his brain showed signs of swelling as if he had been hemorrhaging in his brain and he had strange patches of dark brown on his skin as if he had been radiated. He also had a well-defined vein pattern on mm-hmm. both arms. So weird. Yeah. And on his inner thighs and lower legs. So basically all over his limbs, it was like someone had put black dye into his veins and then they had risen up to the surface. So you could, yeah, it's disgusting. You can, Ugh. there's pictures of this, uh, of this online. And really the the only time that you see this on, on somebody is when they've been struck by lightning or when they've s- suffered some other massive electrical uh, accident. And, and they've had high voltage running through their body. So th- that's just really weird. Like, why would he have signs of suffering a high voltage event when all he was doing was sitting next to a fire, freezing to death, and maybe getting burned 
because he was being driven crazy. That, that doesn't fit. He had a, a foamy gray liquid found in the mouth and lungs, consistent with hypothermia. And his lungs also looked the same as the rest of them. They were filled with that disgusting red, purple, brown liquid. It's very gross. And now we're, we're going to move on to the ravine group. Uh, so the last four victims. And we'll start with Nikolai Thibault Brignole. Brignole. He had no visible external injuries, uh, but they did find a severe depression fracture on his skull right at the temple. Ugh as if he'd been hit with like a baseball bat or something in the temple. And this is what Dr. Boris determined would have been the cause of death because it was, it was horrible and no one could survive it. When asked by investigators how he could have gotten these injuries, given, given what they knew about the situation, Boris responded by saying it, it couldn't have been from just slipping and falling on a rock. Right. Like a normal person couldn't just fall right onto the right onto a rock with their temple first and suffer this level of fracture. It was too severe and widespread. The severity of the injury, according to Dr. Boris, was more akin to getting hit by a car yeah. and thrown into a wall. Um, an insanely strong wind could conceivably explain this. Like, I'm talking a Category 5 hurricane force wind yeah. that throws only him into some pointed object on the ground. It's just weird. Uh, but the odds of that happening are impossible to determine. The investigator said that, you know, what if he was hit by a stone? C could that explain it? And Boris said no, uh, because then there would have been external soft tissue that would have been damaged. But there was, n his skin wasn't damaged is what he's saying. So somehow he fractured his skull mm -hmm. without cutting could his it, skin. Could it have been a long fall, like a 20 foot fall onto a rock? Kind of situation. Yeah, I think that's the idea with the wind. Okay, is like that, throwing you. Yeah, but the thing, but then even still, you're like, well, how would that not upset the skin? I don't know. Yeah, weird. The way that <laughs> Boris explains it, I don't it's fully confusing. understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The next person is Ludmila. Yeah. So Ludmila had, um, she was missing. Remember, these people took three months to discover, and they were in water. Yeah. So they're freezing water aspects of. The state of their bodies that is less preserved and leads to more mystery than some of the other bodies that were found in the snow quicker and they were more well preserved. So she's missing soft tissue in several regions of the face and head. Her eyes were missing, her tongue was missing, her lips were missing, but she had multiple broken ribs that likely caused massive congestion in her chest and like heart failure type of issue. Uh, one of the broken ribs had pressed against and damaged her heart. And that trauma by itself is enough to cause death, a very painful death in 10 or 20 minutes. So it again seems like she had a massive force or a very, uh, or a long fall. Yeah. The, again, these are like car accident trauma, level of trauma, not falling over. Even like falling and hitting a rock or something, it's not going to cause. Yeah. Like you have to fall a distance and land on rocks or something like that. The missing eyes, tongue, and lips are attributed to decomposition or animal scavengers from the water, being in the water as well. Um, so she was one of these ravine victims that was severely damaged as well. And then the next is Simeon Zolotaryov, and he's the older guy. He's, mm -hmm. he's the 38-year-old war veteran. And he also was the one that was found with that other camera around his neck, the one with that really strange frame that we'll talk about more later. 
He had missing skin tissue around his left eyebrow. His The bone was exposed there. You could see his, his face bone, his orbital, I guess. Missing eyeballs, again, explained away by scavenging and decomposition. He had a neck wound that was pretty severe that exposed his bone, uh, his backbone. He had multiple ribs that were fractured on the right side that actually congested the local muscles and punctured lungs. Um, so again, massive force that's squeezing him, essentially. All the organs in his rib cage were pushed down into the abdominal cavity by some unknown force or influence. It could have been a big fall, crushing pressure, impact, something like that. It's interesting that the doctor said that one thing that causes these kind of injuries was explosion. Yeah. Large explosions because it didn't visibly damage the outside as right. much, but it's like a shockwave shock that pass through and break bones internally or cause some of this internal damage. So he compared it to that, which yeah. is interesting. He said that the um, like the, the ideal explanation is a shockwave, mm -hmm. essentially, like a big one. And then m many think that uh, his especially Simeon and, and Ludmila as well, yeah. their injuries could be explained by the crushing weight of that ice bridge. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have 14 to 20 feet of snow above you, snow is very heavy. I don't mm -hmm. know if people know this. Yeah, it snows that much snow. Snow is extremely heavy. Yeah, if you get buried in an avalanche, you can't breathe. And so, um, crush you. yeah, exactly. At, at the very least, it would have been crushing enough to where they couldn't breathe. And perhaps it could have been heavy enough to cause these injuries. Uh, but Dr. Boris seemed skeptical that that was the only thing. Mm -hmm. that happened. He 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 kept indicating like, no, there's something more. Yeah. Something else would have had to do this. And then the last victim is Alexander Kolovatov. Uh, he had a deformed neck in the thyroid area. I have no idea what would have caused that. He had a head wound that penetrated into the temporal bone. He had missing tissue on the right cheek, probably from decomposition. Um, and the most likely cause of death for this guy is hypothermia but he was found with with the rest of the ravine crew. Mm -hmm. He didn't have any massive trauma, at least none that Dr. Boris found. Uh, and the clothes of these four victims had a high amount of beta radiation on them. This was caused by some introduction of radioactive particles into the setting, which is to say they didn't, they didn't experience radioactivity somewhere else and then go on the trip. Yeah. And, and they're still there. No. It would have worn off, like the massive amount that was there would have worn off by the time they were actually found. Because mm -hmm. remember, it was three months later. Yeah. And their clothes are still leaking with radioactive material. So it was something that had to have happened at death. Otherwise, they would have been dead before they ever went on the trip. That's how bad it was. Mm -hmm. And the last food intake of the team was approximated by Boris to be about six to eight hours before death. Uh, so the food that they found in the tent, they were thinking like, okay, well, they must have just left left that out then or uh, left it out to eat in the morning. It appears that the last four victims in the ravine did not outlive the five hikers that died near the fire or on the slope for very long, though they did outlive them for a short time. And it's interesting that their injuries were so different and, and yeah. they were more externally dramatic, yeah. it seems. And people still can't really settle on a good explanation as to why that is. So why don't we talk about um, the official explanation? Yeah. For for what happened here? Because this was obviously investigated by the Russian government, the Soviet, I'm going to call it the Russian government, whatever. <laughs> the Russian government at this at the initial time, this was a big story. A lot of people investigated it. And it was also then investigated again at the request of family from... Uh, 2015 to 2019. 
So the official explanation of the incident, and I'm going to just read so I'm actually going to read this. The Wikipedia page has a really well-documented explanation of yeah. it. It was an avalanche explanation. I'll explain what they mean. Um, and this is from the later investigation, but it was also a similar conclusion initially. So on a, a, this is, quote, on 11 July 2020, Andrei Kiryakov, deputy head of the Urals Federal District Directorate of the Prosecutor General's Office, announced an avalanche to be the, quote, official cause of death for the Dyatlov Pass group in 1959. Later independent computer simulation in analysis by Swiss researchers, also suggest avalanche as the cause. Summarizing Kiryakov's report in The New Yorker, Douglas Preston writes, quote, The most appealing aspect of Kiryakov's scenario is that the Dyatlov party's actions no longer seem irrational. The snow slab, according to Green, would have probably have made loud cracks and rumbles as it fell across the tent. I'm going to explain for a minute here. The specific type of avalanche that they uh, hypothesize is a slab avalanche. So you can have different scenarios, steep hills. This hill wasn't very steep relatively for a mountainside. But what they were thinking is that there's a, a layer of snow and snow accumulates in layers like this through the winter where you have melting cycles. And so if you cut down through 20 feet of snow in Utah, uh, like we had record snow last, yeah. last year. You're going to see like distinct layers. layer, 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 layer. Yeah. And the most dangerous times for avalanches tend to be either after very heavy snowfall in specific conditions or especially heavy wet snowfall or warm conditions that heat up a layer. Yeah. So you have a heavy layer on top of a lighter layer, it will tend to break away and slide. Yeah. And a slab. So the hypothesis was that there's a very small localized slab of snow like this that crushed the tent and forced them out, injured some of the people yeah. as they fled. So I'm going to continue with the quote here now. He said it probably would have made loud cracks and rumbles as it fell across the tent, making an avalanche seem imminent, so a bigger avalanche. Kiryakov noted that although the skiers made an error in the placement of their tent, everything they did subsequently was textbook. They conducted an emergency evacuation to ground that would be safe from an avalanche. They took shelter in the woods. They started a fire. They dug a snow cave. Had they been less experienced, they might have remained near the tent, dug it out, and survived. But avalanches are by far the biggest risk in the mountains in winter. And the more experience you have, the more you fear them. The skier's expertise doomed them. Interesting point. I so, think. yeah, it's an interesting point because yeah. it this was – the hypothesis, it, it, it respects the weirdness of the circumstance at least enough. We're going to criticize it here, but yeah. it respects the circumstance enough to admit that it, if it was an avalanche, it was an unusual one. Right. Because the normal thing to do, run, would have been correct. Right. And – this, though, was like a tiny little slab that basically the the idea is they disrupted a layer when they cut down for their tent and walked around. Yeah. And that caused a small slab to go over their tent enough to hurt them and cause them to have to slash their way out of the tent because it obstructed the entrance. But it actually wasn't enough. It, the whole mountain wasn't coming down. Right. And so maybe that's why they were looking like – yeah, to see it's like, dark. Are, is there going to be more? Are we going to hear more cracking? Yeah, are we yeah. gonna? We're going to see more slabs come down. And when you have an avalanche, it can cause more instability. So you don't want to go across the avalanche, yeah, area again if it hasn't slid. Right. So the so, idea is basically that they they and and I this sounds bad. I don't mean it this way. That the the slab 
they heard the slab, they they panicked, they ran, and then they were paranoid because they mm-hmm. were thought they thought, well, certainly if if that went, then more is gonna go too. We can't go back, yeah. Right. Because the whole thing could go. And then eventually enough of them grew desperate to where those They're three dying. members tried to get back. They yeah. died, and then the other four perished and as well. at that point, they're going hypothermic. Several people have already died, so they're hy- yeah. going hypothermic. They're losing their judgment, and they're starting to make questionable and strange decisions. Right. Um, another idea is that one a part of the group was maybe seeking for a cache of supplies that they had left. Yeah, a lot of people think that the four ravine uh, yeah. hikers were actually trying to go around this ridge mm-hmm. to get to a cache they had just left that day yep. uh, some short distance away of supplies and, and that they they ended up just not being able to make it and they it. just didn't they fell through the ice bridge collapsed with mm-hmm. the water running underneath the snow and they fell 20 feet and got really banged up and died of injuries or exposure being stuck down there yeah and, and so th- that's the official explanation the the later 2015 explanation or investigation also concluded that, yeah, that's what they agreed. That that is what happened. Right. But there is contradictory evidence to this. Yeah, there is. It's not so simple as just a slab avalanche. The location of the incident didn't have any obvious signs uh, that that an avalanche had taken place. So they were were looking at the layers around Mm -hmm. the tent in the snow, and they weren't seeing any layers anywhere else. Yeah that weren't also right where the tent was. Yeah. So it, it was like none of the layers had slipped yeah. around the tent. Now, maybe they were looking the wrong place, yeah. sure, but they didn't see any obvious evidence. This is still from that same section in the Wikipedia article. Yeah. So they acknowledge, it's acknowledged that this isn't just us going, hey, right. we don't like this theory. Well, who are you? We weren't there. These are a bunch of experts, but this is acknowledged criticism. Right. The experts are trying to do their best to explain a really weird situation. But the point is, even people who know what they're talking about don't agree. And ultimately, everyone admits that an avalanche that would have been strong enough to cause this, even though it wouldn't have been like a world-shattering avalanche, right? anyone that would have been strong enough to cause this would have damaged the tree line below them. Yeah, it would have been at least evidence. reached the tree line, and there's no evidence of that whatsoever. Yeah, this isn't a normal avalanche shoot area, but there is one close by. Yeah, and so they, you do see avalanches near. Yep, but this but the slope angle on this exposed hill is not steep enough. Yeah, for avalanches to be a big concern, and the hikers would have known this. Yeah, the other thing is, uh, Dyatlov was experienced, very experienced in hiking and also skiing, and so was Zolotaryov. Yeah, Simeon. He was trying to go for his ski instructor, master hiking instructor. So they would have been, again, avalanches are the number one cause of death in yeah. these, these situations. Exposure and avalanches. So you're going to do, you're going to know when you're setting your camp up that this slope is not prone to av- avalanches. Right, right, right. And there have been more than, a, according to this, there have been over 100 expeditions to this region since the incident, and not one of them ever had an inkling of an avalanche in that area or conditions that would have created an avalanche in the spot where they were camping, which is why they camped there. Right. Because it's not an avalanche area. And then also the tent kind of fell. If it was an avalanche, the tent would have fallen a different way. Right. Collapsed in a different way. It didn't seem to be consistent. Right. The avalanche would have gone past the tent, uh, making it collapse uh, in a horizontal direction, kind yeah. of. This is kind of hard to describe. Yeah. But instead, it collapsed from the side, uh, which, again, it's difficult to describe. But the point is, is that it was partially collapsed and in the way that would have been opposite of what you'd 
expect yeah. from a normal avalanche, unless it was some really, like, completely act of God avalanche. It's the weirdest. Also, the footprint patterns again yeah. weren't consistent. If you think about avalanche cracking, the whole mountain's going to come down, and they believe that. Hey guys, we got to cut out right on tent. There's no time to get clothes. Don't get your boots. Right. Don't we do gotta that. go. Fast. We gotta go. You would think that you would have seen them run out, right? And ever and the footprints show that they all run out in you know and maybe follow each other, but instead they walked out. Their gait, the length of the steps, were consistent with walking, right? With arms linked, not as if they were fleeing from the mountain coming down. Right. It was as if something about the tent only mm-hmm. was threatening. And they just had to get away from the tent. But then it's like, well, if you're out of the tent and on an exposed face, you may as well go down to the tree line because you're mm-hmm. going to be you're going to be better off waiting there than just in the middle of the wind. Mm-hmm. So that's the idea there. The biggest thing for me is the slope angle it, and and the how cold the weather was at yeah, the night. I mean, forty below. Yeah, it just such a light slope and such cold conditions. It just seems really difficult for me to buy into the fact that an avalanche could have happened, I have to suspend a lot of disbelief mm-hmm. in order to think that, that that is really the thing that happened. Yeah. One of the other explanations is infrasound or catabatic wind, yeah. where basically they set up their tent in, in just the worst possible place uh-huh. for the wind patterns to go all around the hills yeah. and weaving in, in, in and around the ridges. And it creates this really uh, low-frequency sound that can't actually be heard yeah. Uh, by the human ear, but the mind still perceives it. Mm-hmm. And because of how it vibrates the eardrum and all this stuff, it makes some people feel an overwhelming sense of anxiety and dread yeah. and fear. And so the idea is like, well, the wind was so strong that night, maybe they suffered this infrasound phenomenon and enough of them panicked that the rest of them then panicked mm-hmm. and they all just ran away. Yeah. The issue with that is that, like I said, it's localized. So once you get that far away from the tent, the effects would have worn off. And, and you'd have been like, let's go back to the tent. You would have quickly realized like, oh, I just got to deal with it. We're going to die. Back. Let's walk a hundred meters to the t- or a half a mile <laughs> to the tent. They could have made a half mile walk yes, they to could the have. tent. Especially after yeah. sitting around a fire. Yeah. So, and the catabatic wind is a little different. Catabatic winds are winds that form down slopes. So it's yeah. like, and they're, it's a rare phenomenon. But it's basically that when you have certain conditions with a mountain slope or it happens in glacial cliffs, where the wind will form a very high-density, fast, like extremely fast-moving wind down the slope. There are documented cases where people are killed, have been killed by catabatic winds, and it's like it's like car injury, um, car crash injury stuff because yeah. you're getting thrown like a hurricane. Yeah. But the problem is the tent was still there. Yeah. And, and not had, everybody... Had, and the tent wasn't covered in snow. It wasn't covered. So it wasn't a catabatic wind. And a catabatic wind, it would have covered it in We snow. just know that it wasn't because they all would have been blown away and had the same injuries and died that way. And they all, like the tent would have been blown away. Brian, studies done throughout the U.S. show that almost one in five churchgoers, that's 20% of churchgoers, never read their Bible. It's very sad. And in Canada, it's even more than half. It's no wonder the world is in such a dark place as it is. But our sponsor for today's show, Bible Discovery, wants to fix that and fill a void. From apologetics and theology to archaeology and science, Bible Discovery is a family-run ministry that takes you through the entire Bible in one year and encourages you to actively engage God's Word in all ways to help you discover or perhaps rediscover the reason for your faith. 
so you can watch the daily TV show or read the monthly guide, which is available in print and digital formats with a donation of any amount. So journey through the Bible at BibleDiscoveryTV.com. That's BibleDiscoveryTV.com for all these benefits or check the link in the description. Our sponsor, Private Family Banking Partners, is on a mission to help Christians live out the Dominion mandate by making a stealth-like move away from the mainstream banks and into their own privatized banking system. This innovative system is designed to guarantee uninterrupted compound interest and tax-free growth without exposure to typical stock market risks. To join this growing community that is already building wealth onto future generations and converting post-mill talk into post-mill action, contact Private Family Banking Partner Chuck DeLateranti at his email chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. That's chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. To set up an appointment and to receive a free copy of Chuck's new book, Protect Your Money Now, How to Build Multi-Generational Wealth Outside of Wall Street and Avoid the Coming Banking Meltdown, go to the links in the show notes below. So... How do we start to connect the dots with mm-hmm. all this? Well, I think that uh, y- y- you actually start to look at the piece of evidence that the initial chief investigator thought was the most compelling. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but the investigator essentially said, all that's left are the lights in the sky. Mm-hmm. Because there were reports from other people in nearby areas, and then there are those two strange pictures that I'm about to talk about that seem to indicate something more was going on. And then you get a whole nother slew of theories after this. So I'm going to just talk a little bit about what these strange pictures actually are. Mm -hmm. The local Mansi tribes people had legends and drawings of fiery balls of light that hung in the sky, full of wrath and power. They referred to them as, quote, flying lights, golden orbs, gods and shining garments, powerful searchlights that release lanterns. Apparently, the Mansi people saw this phenomenon enough to regard it with fearful reverence. This culminated at some point in their long history with the crowning of the goddess Sorni Nai, which translates to the golden sun. This goddess, according to legend, would often go on deadly hunts through the air with her bright and obedient servants. She would be a mother ship to their delegations further down. She floats over the cedar forests, leaving no footprints but a death bang would accompany her and her merciless light would blind her victims. The legend says that Sorni Nai is not interested in harvesting bodies, only taking the vital life force from her victims, the souls of the victims. On the very same night as the Dyatlov tragedy, another student hiking group led by Anatoly Shumkov was about 50 kilometers south, climbing the remote Mount Chista. They had summited in in the middle of the night and they were able to see, in the far distance, the silhouette of the snowy domed peak of Mount Otorten, which was actually the Dyatlov party final objective. Mm -hmm. It was contrasted against the night sky. As they prepared for the descent, the clouds to the north of them, in the direction of the Dyatlov party, suddenly flashed silver. Shumkov reported a massive and bright white spark shooting upwards from the Otorten Valley, floating silently and brightly around the mountaintops illuminating the clouds around it. He thought that it was the Dyatlov team firing off a flare to celebrate a completed mission, so he was happy for his friends. When examining all the evidence in this case, the autopsies leave one nothing but puzzled. There's no straight answer that comes from the findings. 
We can rest assured that some died of, of hypothermia and some died of trauma, but what caused the trauma? And what actually forced them from the tent in the first place? And what caused the other weird side effects found on the hypothermic victims like burns and internal bleedings and skull fractures? Ultimately, we don't know. But if we examine that last piece of evidence left behind, we can venture what we think is the beginnings of a guess. The key to this guess lies in the photographs, specifically the last images on the cameras that display an incredibly bright light which seems to be perched up in the sky. We mentioned these pictures already briefly. They're called frames Z7 and K34. They're the key images that actually are available to the public and show something that genuinely is unexplained. Frame K34 displays a blurry image of a bright cluster of light on the left side of the frame with some lens flare in the center. When this picture is enhanced, three round artifacts are seen at the bottom right corner. Now this could be fingers blocking the frame, it could be rocks, it could be the tops of uh, three people's heads who are also looking at whatever this is actually a picture of. The image is, like I said, blurry, but it was mounted on a tripod. And if we assume this was used to take that image, which isn't too great of an assumption, we can also assume that the blur is due to the motion of the bright object, not necessarily the motion of the camera. When analyzed in some other ways that I won't get into, it appears to be a bright orb leaving a trail of light behind it. And I mean, frankly, that it looks like a classic UAP or orb type photo, even down to the blurriness. There's a chance it could be an image taken by an investigator to reset the shutter once it was taken back to the lab for investigation. That is a real possibility. So we could just be seeing a, a blurry image of a spotlight in a room. The problem with that is that it seems like this image would be a strange thing to keep back from the public for so many years, even temporarily, because it was kept from the public for a long time. Also, the object in the image is so bright that it blacks out completely the rest of the frame. And a light in a room would probably not do this. So maybe it's a flare, maybe a, a torch or a crashing plane, or maybe it's some kind of orb. And moving on to what is perhaps an even more compelling photograph, it's frame Z7. The camera was found wrapped around Zolotaryov's neck in the ravine. This photo, among others, was also kept hidden from the public until about 2015. It seems to depict some kind of ice crystals forming on the lens. Maybe some snow had melted into a water drop while still in the tent and then froze when they moved outside. Right on top of this ice crystal is a very bright ball of light. This image is far more clear than K34. Given the cameras they had, this is actually a pretty good picture. It's just a matter of figuring out what it's actually a picture of. It's worth interjecting here that nine frames of the party's cameras are still missing from the public, concealed by investigative authorities, and we don't know what these frames hold. But anyways, the frame Z7 has been extensively analyzed by the author Henning Kirsten of a book called The Dyatlov Pass Mystery, Not a Cold Case, a book that I used a lot in the researching for this show. He removed some noise in the picture, he added some sharpness and contrast, and what he found was pretty alarming. The ball of light seems to be anything but just a flare, and it doesn't seem to match up at all with other images of more ordinary light sources. It almost looks like a bright fireball or something, and it's leaving a trail of smoke or some other semi-luminescent trail behind it. There's also trace evidence on the film's surface itself that indicate it could have been exposed to high levels of electricity. 
So what rabbit trails might this lead us down into? Has anyone else encountered orbs in that area that have behaved in this bizarre and terror-inspiring kind of way? Well, Brian. Actually, there's a whole web of um, <laughs> of phenomena or theories that range around what these lights were or what could have caused some of yeah, these problems. There's a lot. Now, one of the one of the theories, the speculations, is that the Soviet uh military was conducting exercises in the area. We know that they did conduct exercises in this area mm -hmm. at other times and even around this time. So there's the idea was that they were conducting parachute mine exercises. Parachute mines, the way they work is that they are, it's like what it sounds like. It's a bomb. Which is really cool. With a parachute attached to it. Let's all be honest. Let's, sounds pretty cool. Who doesn't want a parachute, like to be able to throw a couple parachute bombs <laughs> out of a plane or whatever. So basically the idea is that Soviets didn't know their people there or, you know, civilians there because it's super remote S Siberian wilderness. Yeah. They're, they're throwing out parachute mines for the, for the tests. This would be mean that you would see like bright glowing orange fireballs in the sky. Parachute mines don't explode when they hit the ground, they explode in the air. And the injuries that they cause if you were to be killed by one is very similar to some of the trauma so you wouldn't have um, external injuries as much as shockwave that kills yeah. you. Yeah. It's very fast-moving air, basically. It's displaced by the explosion, travels through your body very quickly, causes a lot of damage internally to your bones and your organs, and then you bleed and you die. Yep. Or it injures you really badly, and you freeze to death and die of injuries. So the idea is that they got really scared by hearing explosions. They cut their way to their tent. They run because there's explosions right near them. Some of them are injured by these explosions. They make it to the tree. Two parties split out, one trying to get to the tents. One tries to make another camp and maybe find that cache. They're killed by another explosion, fall into the ravine, and die. Yeah. That's the idea. Yeah, that's the idea. And I'm not super compelled by it, I'll be honest. Yeah, some, so why not? Because I have some reasons. Yeah, I'm not super compelled by it because, number one, it just seems super contrived. It seems more likely that those people fell through a hole in the snow over yeah. in the ravine then like we're thrown into it, you know, by fireballs of yeah. parachute mines. Um, I think that the Russian government cover-up would have been different had they done it. I think we would have far less information. Yeah. Uh, had that been the case. Um, I think that it doesn't explain why they cut their way out of the tent to me or why they didn't put some more clothes on. Because even if you're scared of like – parachute mines or whatever blowing up unless they're right there yeah why would you not because there was no so i mean i guess you could say that any debris that was there was collected by the government and yeah. it was taken away and and uh and whatever but the tent was still partially collapsed like yeah. something had to happen to force them out urgently mm -hmm. you could also say that it explains the the charred branches on the tree but then you'd have to assume that it was almost like targeted, like these parachute mines were following the kids. And I think if that were the case, uh, you'd have some some much bigger problems that yeah. you have to answer. But then you have to say, okay, well, if it's not that, then they were just peppering the whole area yeah. with these parachute mines. And then there's, but there's no other damage anywhere else. Right. So it was localized to the fire. And you're trying to tell me that the government just luckily threw one right over their tent. Mm -hmm. And then collected all the debris and hid it away. And then also yeah. luckily threw one right over the fire they had just it, made. It's the same <laughs> thing with the radiological yeah. testing where it's like, oh, they were doing radiological bombs or, 
or um, weapons. And but then why is only some of why do only some of them have radiation? Yeah, only four victims the ravine have radiation. People. Yeah, and not these other people. Uh, that's the thing just, is so yeah. many of these explanations explain some of the, but victims, not all, but none of them really explain all. I even heard someone who did a lot of research on the, the, especially around the Shumko expedition, the yeah. one where they found, they saw the, the glowing orb and um, they reported extreme cold. And so some of the meteorological data from this time that we do have in reconstructing it does show that basically through this region, because of a confluence of different meteorological phenomena, they experience maybe even down to 50 below zero. Wow. Okay. So the thing is, we can sometimes think and and go back and think like our equipment's like theirs. So they're not using down sleeping bags, mummy bags with uh, sleeping pads and that kind of thing. They're using tarps and blankets. They're using heavy fiber clothing, um, not synthetic materials, but clothing that holds moisture and gets cold. Like jean, it's, it, they're using a canvas tent. Yeah. They didn't use their stove that night, so we 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 they didn't set up their stove in the tent. So it seems like they might have camped on an exposed area. Fifty below uh, cold front comes through. They wake up almost dying because they're so cold. Wow! And then they they say, "Let's we need to get to the tree line. We need to do whatever." So I've heard that as an explanation. But yeah. then, why? not get dressed yeah, why right. not just a step a stove will heat up a tent why not heat use the stove why not? i mean there's so many other elements that every single explanation like this i go cool that explains maybe part of it right then what about all the injuries like <laughs> so there's there's one idea okay let's i want to hear your your <laughs> least hinged idea ben this is haunted cosmos okay haunt diatloff let's hear it orbs orbs Ball lightning. Aliens. A ball of plasma lightning that okay. descends, just like the Mansi people said, like the goddess, uh, whatever the goddess's name was. Sorni Nye. Sorni Nye, who descends and, and this ball of light and sends out her yeah. messengers to steal the souls of people. Yeah. Okay, what if we just suspend disbelief for a okay. minute and right. say, what if orbs are involved At in this? At this point, Ben, I'm willing to <laughs> let's just go. Let's just go. what if orbs are involved in this? There, there's a there's a mountaineer, really, really prolific ski mountaineer named uh, Henning Kirsten. Mm -hmm. And he wrote that book that I just mentioned, uh, The Dyatlov Pass Mystery, Not a Cold Case. And so he brings this really uh, rich history of his own personal experience in the mountains mm -hmm. to the table when analyzing this whole thing. And he is he's emphatic about... The avalanche doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. The government testing thing, like what you're saying, doesn't make sense. They would have done it differently. And so you're left with like, well, what if it was the UAP kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And so I just want to give a couple of accounts yeah. from history, uh, specifically of a mountaineering trip by some Russians in the Caucasus Mountains in 1978. Okay, And they had something happen to them. And I think you'll find that some of these things sound very similar. So this is taken... Uh, from Mr. Kirsten's book as he recounts the account given by one of those Russian climbers in 1978. I woke up with the strange feeling that a stranger had made his way into our tent. Thrusting my head out of the sleeping bag, I froze. A bright yellow blob was floating around one meter from the floor, and it disappeared into Korovin's sleeping bag. The man screamed in pain. The ball jumped out and proceeded to circle over the other bags, now hiding in one, now in another. When it burned a hole in mine, I felt an unbearable pain, as if I were being burned by a welding machine. I blacked out. 
regaining consciousness after a while, I saw the same yellow ball which, methodically observing a pattern that was known to it alone, kept diving into the bags, evoking desperate, heart-rendering howls from the victims. This indescribable horror repeated itself several times. When I came back to my senses for the fifth or sixth time, the ball was gone. I could not move my arms or legs and my body was burning as if it had turned into a ball of fire itself. In the hospital, where we were flown by helicopter, seven wounds were discovered on my body. They were worse than burns. Pieces of muscle were found to be torn out to the bone. The same happened to Shigen, Kaprov, and Bashkarov. Oleg Korovin had been killed by the ball, possibly because his bag had been on a rubber mattress, insulating it from the ground. The ball lightning did not touch a single metal object injuring only people. So there were also reports from the same area and around the same time of this miner who's working close by and he's in charge of a mining crew. Mm -hmm. And he's over this one specific pit, you know, he's the foreman of a pit. And he goes over there to start turning on the machinery, but also just checking to make sure everything was there because they had had some robberies in the past. Yeah. The point is he's all alone and it's completely dark when he arrives. And he says that he gets there and everything quiets down and he sees this massive ball of white light start to come toward him through the forest. And then it sends out these little like swimming beacons of other light that seem to be coming straight towards him. Mm -hmm. And it's making this horrible buzzing sound and it's, it is making him really freaked out. He starts hiding behind this thing and then he notices that it goes away. Well, then he turns around and looks back and it turns around and looks back towards him. And he's like the only person there and he's getting completely freaked out. So he turns on all the lights that he can in the pit, but it doesn't go away. And so now he's getting even more afraid. And finally, some trucks start rolling up because they're seeing like, oh, this, this pit's available now. And finally, the thing kind of like just dissipates into the air and, and starts to go away, which <clears throat> that makes it seem almost like this, uh, this prescient thing. Mm -hmm. But then there was another, again, this is all really local to, to Mount Otorten, like the, the yeah. whole Dyatlov Pass area. There was a park ranger who was nearby. Uh, and this is, I think, one year after the Dyatlov events. And he said that he was looking up from his tent. He was alone at night. He had just lit the fire. And he started seeing what looked like swinging flashlights through the woods. Mm -hmm. And there were poachers in the area. So he started going after them yeah. with his rifle. And these flashlights, it turns out, were only coming out of this much bigger ball of light hmm. that looked like almost solid or something. Like it, yeah. like it was horrible. So he hides behind this log and he looks up. He says for 45 minutes, he's looking up at this thing. And every time he looks up, the, the trails of light come closer to him. And so he ducks down again and he looks up and they come again. Finally, he says like after you know 45 minutes to an hour, this thing just kind of dissipates into the ether and he makes his way back to his tent. And so the idea from this Henning Kirsten guy is that what if the orb or what if there's a, a natural phenomena called ball lightning that we just don't know that much about? Yeah. Where this like a confluence of temperatures and pressures and static electricity and ionized air all come together to create an environment where this semi-tangible and solid plasma ball mm -hmm. descends and is hovering over the earth looking for some highly conductive thing to pass through and humans are quite conductive and so anytime there's a human close by it, it almost like goes to attack them so that's weird the, that's the idea I, I mean i know that people have investigated this like dr tudorani here yeah has investigated this or at least they've established the group to try to figure it out. Right. 
the Hesdalen Project. Basically a group that's trying to figure ball lightning out. Because there's, there's to me, this phenomena has like a Venn diagram with orb <laughs> yeah. and lightning where you go, okay, if this really exists, is it a natural phenomena or is it some demon orb thing? Because right, they or seem sentient. Is it one of those things that could be both? Where I, yeah, every once in a while the, the spiritual thing latches onto the natural, and it I don't know it it becomes more sentient kind of. So so they call this spherical unidentified anomalous aerial phenomena or AAPs or Earth lights apps apps like apps and zerts <laughs> Earth lights nice Earth lights. A lot of people say that after earthquakes they see these balls of light rising up from the cracks in the ground. Uh, so this is an event that's you know witnessed by a lot of people. It would kind of help to explain some of the stuff on Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, like yeah. the crazy orbs that fly through the air and Why kill not? dogs. Like they they turn dogs into goop. Yeah, know? in a puddles of dog butter. And one of the things that he said is that the scientists that are doing this research claim that you could very, very easily have one of these things explode mm -hmm. and create a shockwave. And so the guy, uh, Henning Kirsten, however you pronounce his mm -hmm. name, some Norwegian thing, uh, he kind of gives his whole series of events. Mm -hmm. He thinks that he figured it out. So he tells the Dyatlov story. He this. tells the Dyatlov story. And, yeah, and tell I, us the story. Yeah, How I'll does tell you it go? that now. So it was past midnight. Most of the hikers were sound asleep and the snowfall had stopped. And Zolotaryov crawled out of the tent with his flashlight in hand in order to go to the bathroom. But there was something in the air, like some kind of electrostatic energy that made crackling noises and tiny sparks when he brushed over the neoprene jacket. Suddenly through squinting eyes, he could make out flickering purple-blue flames that seemed to be burning on tall rock formations of the Southern Pass, like a lonely and forgotten landlocked lighthouse that doesn't know it's no longer needed. And he turned back to the tent to wake his comrades. And when he did, he noticed a similar strange glow on the ski poles that were holding up the canvas. He watched in awe for a few minutes. He'd never seen anything like this. And suddenly a bright sphere, larger than the moon, caught his attention in the near distance. Engulfed in a foggy halo like a ghost in a misty graveyard, it slowly and silently floated across the bare mountain slope from the south, oscillating in brightness and changing color from yellow to white like some mysterious firefly from Dis. He yelled his friends awake and asked for a camera. Tebow threw on his felt boots and hurried outside to hand Zolotaryov the first camera. While Krivonashenko was preparing a tripod with his own camera, the others crawled outside to witness and photograph the spectacular celestial phenomena. They watched for a few minutes and Krivonashenko managed to take a single and final picture, that K-34 frame, of an undulating bright orb before it disappeared in silence behind the peak. Baffled, but not frightened, the group returned to the tent in their warm blankets, discussing the phenomena they'd just seen. Igor mentioned that maybe these fireballs are a known phenomena in this area because he'd actually been warned by an old man and farmer uh, in one of the towns they'd passed through to watch out for crazy lightning. And just as Slobodin was about to take off his second boot, a white spinning torus appeared 30 meters above the tent, sending a hot beam of blinding bright light towards the tent like a vindictive microwave. Seconds later, it multiplied into a pulsing cluster like cells in our microscope. Zolotaryov, the guy who uh, first saw it, had remained outside this whole time. 
and he watched in anxious disbelief as the wobbling cluster suddenly spit out a turnip-sized, bright blue ball, which descended with great speed. A few meters above the snowy slope, it made a sharp turn and headed against the wind to the uphill end of the tent, where the stove usually stands, and the smokestack exits. It slipped into the tent through the pipe opening, slowly hovered for a few terrifying seconds in midair, and then exploded on the aft-supporting ski pole with a tremendous bang, splintering the pole at its junctions and cracking the lens of Krivonoshenko's camera, which was lying attached to the tripod on the floor. Instantly, panic overcame the hikers inside the now partially collapsed tent. Blinded and deafened, they grabbed knives lying around them from dinner and cut themselves through the eastern canvas, opposite the path of these light balls. A safe distance downhill, they regrouped, conned themselves, and decided that a return to the tent would be too dangerous. They couldn't recover their boots and jackets, at least not yet. The next fireball was already visible on the southern sky, and they were still so full of adrenaline that they barely noticed the freezing cold. They fled eastward, towards the valley of the Lazva River. They knew exactly that they had ascended from the southern Ospia River Valley in the evening, and the ridge of the pass and the wind from the north were like natural compasses. Moreover, the passing orbs provided more light than a full moon. Zolotaryov, the oldest and most experienced of the group, was calm enough to take about 20 pictures of these fireballs. Since he and Tebow were wearing boots and warm clothes, they were not in the same hurry to get to the sheltered tree line, but were eager to capture the spectacular event on camera. They were able to rejoin the group at the tree line. Little did Zolotaryov know that two hours later, he and his camera would nevertheless end up at the bottom of a creek. The pictures taken now just main leads in an investigation that would last six decades. Holding hands, the hikers stumbled in their socks down the mountain to the promising safety of the forest. When the other two caught up and rejoined, they headed for a large cedar tree, which stood like a tall signal tower in a stormy night a prominent and somehow inviting meeting place that would be easy to find again if they got lost. Another good reason to choose the cedar was the circumstance. Beneath the branches, only a few centimeters of snow would obstruct them in building a fire. However, in their bewildered state of mind, they forgot that tall trees were not the safest place to be during a thundersnow condition. But then again, this was not a typical lightning storm. While his friends went on to collect dry branches from the cedar and surrounding bushes, Krivonoshenko managed to get a fire going. There was plenty of dry firewood available, but collecting it and tending the fire was an increasingly painful task, as frozen hands were burning with pain and sharp branches caused bleeding injuries. Doroshenko soon realized that thicker branches would allow for a warmer and longer fire. He climbed the cedar and began to work on the upper branches. Some were too green for fire, but they were perfect for insulation from the freezing ground. At this point in time, the group was well organized and had a good chance to survive and eventually return to the tent. In that instant of hope, things took a catastrophic turn for the worse. A lightning bolt crashed down on the cedar, tearing off thick branches and leaving a large gap on the side of the tree facing the mountain. Doroshenko, who was unlucky to be in the tree at the time, was killed instantly by a current thousands of amps strong. The energy entered his body on his head and arms, boiled his lungs and exited his legs and feet, leaving them partially charred. He tumbled to the ground, hitting sharp protruding stumps and tearing his clothes on the way down. The search party would later find pieces of his clothing and skin on the bark. As the bolt traveled along the trunk of the tree into the ground, it ejected a large and blindingly bright lightning ball that got attracted to the conductive plasma of the fire and exploded next to Krivonoshenko, kneeling beside it. The hot blast charred his hands, burned a large area of his leg and foot, and caused fatal injuries to his lungs. All this happened in a split second. 
While the two unlucky fire tenders lay dead beside the blown out fire, wood splinters and pine needles came raining down from the sky. Some of the nearby spruces were glowing from the hot plasma, and scorched twigs and dead birds would be discovered by Chief Inspector Ivanov three weeks later. Zina and Slobodin, who were collecting twigs a few meters away from the fire, were thrown into shrubs, suffering cuts and contusions. Slobodin landed on his head, resulting in hemorrhages, abrasions, and a skull fracture. They survived the blast, but the seriousness of their situation instantly dawned on them. Tebow was not so lucky. He was catapulted into a rocky depression downhill from the cedar, where he suffered a more severe skull fracture and concussion. He may as well have been thrown off a busy road by a speeding and unfeeling car. Zolotaryov, who was standing in a clearing close to the cedar and still trying to capture the phenomenon on film, was hit by the full force of the blast wave, shattering his right rib cage and severely compressing his lungs and organs, causing internal bleeding. When the seven survivors recovered from the shock and regained their vision and hearing, they regrouped and realized that seeking shelter under the cedar had been a bad choice. They remembered the ravine they had crossed shortly before reaching the cedar, and after bedding their two dead comrades onto branches beside the remains of the fire and salvaging some of their clothes, they dragged the fatally injured Tebow back to the natural depression of the snow-filled creek and agreed to split. Three would stay with Tebow and dig a shelter, while the stronger three would continue on and attempt to make it back to the campsite to retrieve clothes and blankets. Zena chose to stay with Igor. She admired him, while he felt equally attracted to her and wanted to see her safe. Meanwhile, the three at the creek didn't realize they were digging their own grave. Ludmila, Kolovatov, and the injured Zolotaryov were in the process of moving snow and laying out branches for the shelter on the bank of the creek, when a final tragedy overcame the weakened and decimated group. Ludmila decided to return to the cedar to retrieve more clothes from the dead and to carry over coals from the fire when she broke through the ice-snow bridge covering the creek, which had been destabilized by their crossing and by the den of the bank. She fell three meters down into an icy black tunnel, smashing her ribcage and face on a large boulder protruding from the bedrock. She never regained consciousness. She would be discovered months later like a fallen climber with multiple broken ribs, hemorrhage in her punctured heart, and blood in her stomach from her smashed face. Kolovatov and Zolotaryov immediately hurried to her rescue, but their united weight caused the overhanging bank, including the fatally wounded Tebow, to completely collapse into the creek. With soaking wet clothes and frozen hands in the negative 30 degrees Celsius, they didn't have the slightest chance to climb out, let alone rescue the dying Ludmila from the freezing water. It was as hopeless as being trapped in a crevasse. Their dugout became their grave, and its location was indeed so sheltered that it would take over three months for their bodies to be found under tons of melting snow, grouped together in a final embrace. Zina, Slobodin, and Dyatlov, who were attempting to return to the tent, didn't know that they were the last survivors. For close to an hour, they were too afraid to cross the exposed slope in the ongoing APP event, and were finally overcome by exhaustion and hypothermia. With fists clenched in pain and determination, they were found in locations that lent some minimal shelter from the wind. Several witnesses, dozens of kilometers away, including the Kistop hikers, would later testify to the exploding fireballs an hours-long duration of the event. To the Mansi, it was another fierce display of power by Sorni Nai, their goddess in shining garments. Now, of course, this is by no means a definitive solution, though we think it is quite compelling. 
The existence of earth lights and ball lightning is still heavily disputed. Orbs are heavily disputed. We don't know what they are, if they are. We don't know if they're always natural, sometimes natural, or ever actually natural. Perhaps the Mansi weren't too far from the truth of the matter. Hmm. At any rate, this is just one among a vast number of unexplained mountaineering incidents that continue to grip the curiosity and imagination of people today. And we'll leave you with one last story. Not about Dyatlov and his team. In fact, it has nothing to do with him, at least not on the surface. But it goes to show how strange of a place it is that we live and how there are things at work under the sun, whether natural or otherwise, that we certainly have yet to discover and name. On August 9, 1993, in a small river feeding the immense Lake Baikal in Siberia, a group of kayakers drifted through the water, enjoying the opportunity to breathe for a bit in between sections of heavier rapids. Little did the men know, they floated towards a doom so dark and strange it remains unresolved today. On one of the banks, half covered in some thicket and twig, one of the men noticed what he thought was the slight figure of a young woman, crouched as if halfway hiding, as if she was unsure how trustworthy these men were. As the rest of the group registered her, she began to scream and beg for help with high-pitched shrieks. They took her in and slowly now, made their way back to the town at the foot of the Kamar Daban Pass that she had been traversing. Safe again, but still crazed and silent for some unknown reason, she slept. On August 10th, she woke up, cleaned herself, and made her way to the local police station to share a story. The Kamar Daban Range is not an uncharted alien land. It is in a hostile environment, sure, but it isn't shrouded in mystique, at least it wasn't. For decades, it had been a popular proving ground for thousands of hikers each year. It was difficult, it would push you, but it wouldn't break you. It, it wasn't what you might describe as risky. So you can imagine the shock of the investigators when this petite young woman, Valentina was her name, informed them that were they to travel up to just beneath the highest point of the pass, they would find six corpses strewn across the gently sloping shoulder of the mountain. They were her friends. Valentina appeared sober-minded enough, so the men went up. Sure enough, it was just as she had said, six people decomposing into the firm and unyielding mountainside. Autopsies were performed, reports were filed, and Valentina was cleared of any guilt. But she would not say what happened. Not until 25 years later, when she finally deemed her mind free enough from the pain to play back the events once again. According to Valentina, the only survivor, this is what happened. On August 2nd, 1993, she set out with six of her friends to spend a week in the Kamar Daban Range, hiking through the pass and enjoying a slow descent where they might practice some mountaineering skills. The trip leader, a woman named Ludmila, had done this same route dozens of times and was well-versed in the tricks necessary to give people a safe and joyful time on the mountain. By August 4th, the team had pushed through the high section of the pass and settled down for camp in an exposed but undeniably beautiful section of the hillside facing the gargantuan Lake Baikal. The mountain, behaving in characteristically mountainous ways, began to show signs of a cold and heavy late summer storm brewing at its peak. Sure enough, before long, the team was enveloped in a brutal storm. Trees were bent down by the force of the winds at lower altitudes from them, and at one point, one of their tents was even lifted off of the ground altogether. The team shared two tents and hunkered down for a night of rough sleep unable to even light a fire. On August 5th, the storm had slowed and all but passed. They lit a fire, ate breakfast, grateful to be through what they were sure would be the worst monkey wrench thrown at their summer alpine trip. They packed and began to make their way to the next camp, 
a lighthearted mood of relief permeating the air. Then the real trouble began. A young man named Alexander, one of the members of their little band, started screaming in pain. The others turned around, soon regretting their pity for the sake of the horror that met their eyes. Alexander, healthy and jovial just moments before, was bleeding from his mouth and eyes, spitting foamy mucus from his mouth, falling to the ground in agony, and began to convulse uncontrollably. Everyone screamed except Ludmila. She ran to the boy, searching for any way of helping him before she too succumbed to the same fate. Eyes rolling back, with blood taking their place, convulsing on the ground, she let out a scream before another woman ran to her. She didn't even get close to the pair before she too collapsed and began the same desperate and painful convulsions as the other. Valentina, subduing the temptation to panic, ran to this most recent victim and began to drag her away, wondering if there was something in the air that may be causing this. The woman bit her violently until she let go, and Valentina was then forced to watch as this woman, a shell of her former self, crawled over to a boulder as if dragged by some unseen force. Once leaning on the stone, she lifted her head only to drive it back down onto the rock with inhuman force and recklessness. Valentina looked on. The woman slammed her face into the rock again and again until she slumped to the ground, unmoving. Valentina was now stunned, shocked, scared, unable to move, unable to look away from even this vile scene. Two other hikers fled the scene, but it was a short flight. They too began bleeding from the face before ripping at their clothes in desperation and ultimately falling to convulsions and then stillness. The last member of the team, a young man named Dennis, grabbed Valentina and the two began their own sprint away from the carnage. Her heart sinking, Valentina continued on in crazed despair after Dennis fell behind with the familiar screams and shakes the evil weapons of this mystery killer that had set upon the others. She ran until she couldn't, and then she slumped down in the trees and set up her tent and slept. She slept thinking she would die, but she woke up again. For three more days, she wandered in a near catatonic dream through the woods on the wrong side of the ridge, following the power lines to the river, following the river to an exposed bank and waiting there for someone. When she saw the kayakers, she screamed for help and was saved. She's never known what happened to her friends, and she's never been content with any ideas that anyone has given her.